Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. We're going to review a little bit. Uh, First of all, just very quickly, uh, we began with looking at the implications of creation in uh, lesson number one. God's goodness, God's power, and the fact that he established covenants, kingdoms, and priesthoods as key pieces in this puzzle that uh, he uh, would have us to understand as, as his big picture. We looked then in lesson number two at God's purpose for creation, and basically that is God created us so that we would praise his glory. And then in lesson number three, God's plan for sinners. God calls for sinners to repent and turn to him. And of course, Jesus came to make it possible for us to enjoy salvation in eternity. Then lesson number four, it's always been about grace and faith. The Old Testament and the New Testament, both uh, basically the two basic ingredients of God's rescue plan or God's plan of salvation is he provides the grace and we have to respond in faith. And last week we looked at patterns in the picture, uh, things such as the water, blood sacrifices, uh, God's always offering free will choice, but he also presents rewards and consequences associated with those choices. And today, we're going to look at some additional pieces. We're going to look at God as a God of covenants. Our God is a God of covenants. Thus far, we've looked at four, made brief mention of four, the one with Adam, the one with Noah, the one with Abraham, and finally that one with Moses, or really with the people of Israel. And in connection with the, pr- the purpose, uh, it's important to link these things together. I think God gave us these covenants, and within those covenants, he did this, uh, to the best of my understanding. He created in those covenants a motivation for and an opportunity for us to fulfill his purpose, that is, to praise him. And he also provided within those covenants the very definition of what it means to have a relationship with him and how we might enjoy that relationship. So the covenants that God's given are all really key pieces, key ingredients of the big picture. Uh, These covenants provided us uh, with a way to fulfill his purpose and to establish or enjoy a relationship with him. So we have looked at four, as I said so far, And we're going to look uh, at an additional one today and another one later on. When we think about God's covenant, it's important to think of them uh, in terms or really in contrast with a conventional covenant. A conventional covenant that we make, say between two businesses or two individuals in in the form of a contract or whatever, is that it's between two equal parties. Uh, there are mutually things, or things agreed upon mutually, 
privileges, responsibilities, and there may also be penalties as well for failure to keep the contract, to keep the covenant. God's covenants are very different. Uh, They're not like ours. God is sovereign. He makes the covenant. He decides with whom, when, how, the terms of that covenant. Someone, and it is all according to his choosing. And unilaterally, God defines the privileges, the responsibilities, the penalties, the rewards uh, that are associated with the keeping of that covenant. We do not get to define God's covenants for him, but God is a loving, merciful God who defines and gives covenants for us, as I indicated earlier, to give us the motivation and opportunity to serve him. They are always for our good and for our benefit. I'd like to also point out some other characteristics about God's covenants. Uh, One writer wrote this about the covenants uh, of God. He says they are like the backbone of the Bible. From Genesis on, God enters into one formal relationship after another, that is covenants, with various humans in order to rescue this world. These divine human relationships push that narrative forward until it reaches its climax in Jesus Christ. Thus, to tell the story of God redeeming his people through Jesus is, in large measure, to tell the story of God's covenantal relationships with his people. This illustration indicates, I think, or hopefully it is meant to indicate, that covenants are very much like the backbone, like each vertebra rests upon the other and provides the one below, provides support uh, and connectivity to the one above it. And uh, very much covenants, God's covenants are the same way. And they are bidirectional. That is, they look both forward and backward. They look forward because God is always looking at the end of the story. And every covenant that he presented, beginning in Genesis 3.15, he tells the end of the story. And they also always look backward. The covenant, For instance, the covenant that God made with Noah looked backward to the covenant that he made with Adam and in, in fact included some of the same basic terms. There, it was built on the one that he had given with Adam. Likewise, the covenant of uh, Moses and Abraham Moses' covenant, the Israelite law, looked back to the promises, to the covenant that God made with Abraham. They're all built on the past, but they're also always looking to the future. The uh, Mosaic covenant, which we're probably most familiar with or think about the most, is uh, an unrealized covenant in that it was not fully completed in the Old Testament. We don't find its completion until we get to the New Testament. And again, the New Testament covenant is looking backward to Moses' law. But it also looks forward to judgment and to the garden of heaven itself. There are some other characteristics that I'd like to highlight about covenants. 
And if you would turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 15, we can see several, we can observe several things there uh, in God's uh, covenant as he defines or gives a very uh, thorough list of the characteristics or the nature of his covenants. The first thing in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy at verse 15 uh, it says, see, have set before you today life and good, death and evil. So first thing is God sovereignly gave a covenant to the Israelites. I've said it before you. I command you, he said. God chose when, with whom, and the contents. The second thing to notice is that his covenants are based on love. Notice in verse 16, it says, if I can get to the right verse. So that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments. So God loved us. He commands us or expects us to love him as well. So the basis is love. His covenant was also guaranteed. In verse 19, he says, I call heaven and earth as witness today against you that I have set before you life and death. God offered a guarantee. He called heaven and earth as witnesses uh, and speaks later uh, in the New Testament uh, in the sermon that Peter gave on Pentecost. He spoke of God's oath to David with regard to his covenant. So God gives a promise and he commits himself to his covenant. And it's an open, revealed covenant. No secrets with God. He tells us what he has in mind. His covenants are typically conditional. If you will notice in verse 15, the very the second word, but if your heart turns away. So God placed a condition on it. Not always in all of the covenants were conditions given, but that was usually, is usually the case. There are promises, penalties, and responsibilities spelled out. In verse 16, walk in his ways. Also, that you may live and multiply. Verse 17 and 18, if your heart turns away, you shall perish. And then even in verse 18, it indicates that if they fail to keep his covenant, they can even lose out on the promised land. So God's covenants are complete in this case, telling them what he expects of them, how to maintain a relationship with him, how to praise him, how to worship him, how to serve him. And also, God will save his covenant people. In verse 19, set set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live. So we've discussed four four covenants already, ending uh, with the one with the Israelites, Moses' covenant. But uh, we're going to move on now to uh, what is generally called the Davidic covenant or God's covenant uh, with King David. But before we do that, we need to talk about Samuel just a little bit. And this is where we get back into the history uh, to tie this into God's plan. At this point, when Samuel... uh, is is a judge, 
God, over a period of time, has taken a what I would call a ragtag group of people uh, and made a nation out of them. They were originally loosely organized tribes, and he has now brought them to the point where they're a nation. They begin to realize what's going on around them, uh, and they make a request of Samuel. Samuel, as we know, was the last of the judges. Unlike those who had preceded him, Samuel was a righteous man. Many of the, his predecessor judges were really rascals, if you, when it comes right down to it. But uh, God had a purpose, and he used even such men as that to bring about his will and his way. But Samuel is selected by God because he's a prophet, because he's a priest of the tribe of Levi. He is, of course, the final judge, the last one, and he selects Samuel to be the anointer of kings. And so God is making a transition for his people. They're transitioning from judgeship to kingdom. And that's where we begin to see the kingdom phase come into play, and we are very familiar with many of the pieces of history associated with that. We read this in 1 Samuel 8, all, all, verse 4 and 5. Then all of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now Samuel really didn't like this. It was perhaps kind of an insult to him, but uh, I think he was thinking more of God and his will. And uh, he tried to dissuade the people, tried to get them to change their mind, but they, of course, refused to listen. And then he goes to God, and he tells God what the people have in mind. And uh, perhaps surprising to him, God says, okay, go ahead, give him a king. Uh, the people wanted a king, and the fact they used the words, uh, Give us a king to judge us like all the nations. All the nations around them were people that lived in idolatry. They were a wicked and evil people. But yet they wanted a king like all of those nations. Now, let me ask you. They asked God, or they asked through Samuel, to make them a king. Is there anything wrong with that request, why would it be right or wrong to ask God to make them a king? Can you think of maybe one or two reasons that that might be the case? Yes, Charles. They already had a king. That's exactly right. God was their king. Yep. You think of other reasons, perhaps? Yes, Brother Bill. I'm sorry? Yes, they did disobey God. That's right. Another reason uh, that might, might be a possibility, uh, and I think it's in these words, like all the nations, uh, don't know what the people were thinking when they... Uh, uh, said that, 
I think a part of what they were thinking is we want a king who will be a great military leader and lead us out to fight our battles and defeat all our enemies around us. Uh, whether they were thinking of other aspects of how these nations lived, I don't know that. But certainly we observe from their history later on all of those things that were a part of those nations around them came flooding in to the nations of Israel. And I can't help but think that that change, giving up, in effect, giving up God as king and changing to an earthly king, uh, made that so. One of the things that Samuel did before he made this uh, change in First Samuel 12, at ver- beginning in verse 22, I'd like to read that. And this is Samuel speaking to the people. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all of your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you, But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Those words sound a lot like some of the terms that God gave in the law of Moses. And so Samuel is reminding the people of their covenant. But he did appoint a king like all the nations as they requested. God indeed gave them a king like all the nations. Samuel was, or Saul rather, was indeed a good military leader. He was tall, he was handsome, stood head and shoulders above his people, and because of his appearance, uh, if nothing else, the people regarded him like a king. But Saul had a lot of things wrong with him as well. He had many failings as time went by. He started out as a very humble man. He hid in the baggage when they were trying to appoint him and anoint him king. But he allowed pride to take over his life, perhaps because of of his position. But we know Saul's history. The thing that was the tipping point for God was when Saul failed to annihilate the Amalekites as he had been commanded by God through Samuel. And we know uh, from reading in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 10, the encounter between Samuel and Saul on this occasion. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he's turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord, all night. He was very sad to see the state of the leadership of his nation, his people, uh, down, come down to this level. But it is, I think, this history with Saul is an example of how things can turn out badly when our leaders uh, are not following in God's footsteps and God's ways. Next thing we know that happened is God chose another king. 
And instead of one that was like all the nations, as Samuel told Saul, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. Not like all the nations, but a man like God, a man after God's own heart. So the story goes on about the people, the kingdom. But now they have a man who began out, who began as a very humble person, a shepherd, but he became a hero by killing Goliath. His fame was established. His place in the kingdom was established. He was, he was allowed to marry the king's daughter and he was appointed a place in the king's military structure. Uh, and he became a great military leader, uh, himself. And he was, uh, highly recognized and well known to the people. So this time of killing Goliath was a turning point in the life of David as well. Uh, but unlike Saul, he never seemed to allow pride to take over. He at times, we know, departed from God's way. But he was always willing to turn back to God and look to God for guidance, for leadership. And David, uh, as we know, plays a big part in God's big picture plan for his people. Uh, but he is, I think, in, in a number of ways, a demonstration of the kind of leader that God chooses and can use. Uh, he had his faults. He had his flaws. But he was also a man of faith who looked, looked to God for guidance. Now I'd like to talk about the covenant that God gave to David. And I've got it in two parts on two different slides, and this is the first part of it that is found in Second Samuel chapter 7. And it begins in the middle of verse 11. And the Lord tells you, as also the Lord tells you, that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, uh, you notice the highlighted words. I've highlighted the words in here that represent the elements of David's covenant. I will set up my seed after you. Of course, a reference to Jesus himself, who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. But he's also talking about his son, Solomon. I will establish Solomon's kingdom but it could also refer to the kingdom of Christ. But speaking of Solomon, verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. We know Solomon built a temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So notice the elements that are there. I will set up your seed after you. It's really an extension of the promise he made to Abraham, the seed promise that we've discussed earlier. God would establish Solomon as David's successor, a second element. A third element is that David's son Solomon would be the one that built the temple. Uh, he shall build a house for my name. And the fourth element we see here is that Solomon's descendants would reign forever. We usually think of David kingdom being forever, and it was through Jesus but also Jesus is connected to Solomon as well. Biologically, through Jesus' mother Mary, uh, 
Jesus was a descendant of David's son, Nathan. But in a legal sense, in a dynastic or kingly sense, he was a descendant of Solomon. Because you trace all of the names of the male descendants coming from David through Solomon down to Jesus through uh, Jesus' father, earthly father, Joseph, you see the connection to Solomon. So in all regards, Solomon's kingdom and David's kingdom were preserved forever. The second part of the the, uh, Davidic covenant is given here beginning in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7. I will be his father and he shall be my son, referring to Solomon. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. God told David that if your son Solomon commits iniquity, iniquity, he would chasten him. Uh, And we know from the history of Solomon, there were a few sins scattered in there every now and then. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and who knows how many uh, idols he set up around uh, the land. But interestingly, unlike Saul, God didn't take Solomon's kingdom away from him. He waited until Solomon had a son, Rehoboam, and then he took the kingdom, divided it into two pieces, giving only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, to the leadership of uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam. So God had mercy on him. Then the final element that's uh, noted here is David's dynasty on the throne. I will establish your house and your kingdom forever. David also, of course, being a uh, ancestor of Jesus Christ. And so this is actually a prophecy of Jesus himself. So I think it's useful to note at this point, as we look further down through history and then through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, a big part of God's work was actually, from this point onward, restoring or reestablishing his perfect reign as king. He had these flawed earthly kings ruling over his people, but his ultimate aim is that he be the perfect king who would rule over his people. So we see from from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and finally David's family. Uh, God has narrowed the genealogical pool, so to speak, uh, to the point that it is confined to David's family. Well, we know how all of this is fulfilled. Uh, It was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans chapter 1 at verse 3 says, Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God 
with power. So God's covenant stated that David would be the progenitor of Jesus Christ. Uh, And Jesus, of course, was the last occupant, the last holder of the throne of David. Uh, God has in him uh, returned uh, his kingdom to having a perfect king. Another bit of history. This is a depiction of the prophet Nathan confronting David for his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, We're all familiar with that story. Uh, and the fact that David uh, was uh, very grieved after it was pointed out to him by Nathan, and he repented, and Psalms chapter 51 is a very beautiful uh, expression of David's remorse for his sins. And in Psalm 51, at verse 10, we read these words, which are, uh, we also memorializing song, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. These events uh, that uh, David was involved in, of course, created or changed the very nature of his life from that point on. They were very destructive to David's family. Uh, You may remember that uh, one of his sons, Amnon, raped his half-sister, Tamar. Her brother, Absalom, came along and killed Amnon in revenge. And then later, this same son, Absalom, rebelled against his father, David, and uh, attempted to overthrow and take the throne. Uh, He was not successful, uh, and he lost his life at the hand of one of David's generals as a result. But it was very destructive uh, to David's family. He violated all of God's rules with respect to wife and family, and it cost him dearly. Other part of the history that uh, we need to look at in connection with the Davidic covenant is the building of the temple. As we noted earlier, Solomon was the one to build the temple. Uh, Of course, uh, we also, perhaps you may remember that David was the one who gathered all the materials together, or much of the material anyway, and had it ready for Solomon when he became king and uh, was preparing to build the temple. David had some advice for Solomon uh, as he became king. In 1 Chronicles 22, he told this to Solomon. You will prosper if you take care to fulfill the statutes and the judgments with which the Lord charged Moses concerning Israel. This is just one of many reminders that God provided for the leaders of his people and for his people that they needed to keep his covenant. And he was particularly mindful of the role that leadership had in this and uh, frequently reminded them of their need to uh, guide the people to keep the covenant. On 
completing the temple, God himself gave a warning to Samuel, or to Saul, rather, I'm sorry. Uh, and uh, that is found in Second Chronicles 7, uh, verses 19 and 20, and I don't have that on a slide, but in Second Chronicles 7, beginning at verse 19, this is God telling Solomon, but if, again that word if, you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them, that is the people, from my land which I have given them, and this house, the temple, which I have sanctified for my name, I will cast out of my sight and will make it a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. About 470 years after God made this statement to Solomon, the nation of Babylon, under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, defeated the Israelites, defeated Judah, uh, and destroyed the temple as a part of that. Solomon failed in the advice that David gave him. He failed in the advice and the warning uh, that God had given him. But there is one other thing to notice about Solomon, and I find it uh, an interesting dichotomy. Uh, this is a depiction of the dedication of the temple when Solomon was king, and he dedicated the temple. Uh, he uh, led a very, very eloquent and very powerful prayer at that time. I would uh, urge you to go and read it sometime. It's it's a nice, it's a very good piece of literature, in and of itself. Uh, and then uh, you can read that in uh, in Second Chronicles, uh, along about chapter six. Uh, but <clears throat> he makes as a part of his prayer, he makes the statement that's on the slide here. Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said you shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel. Uh, so it was during the reign of Solomon that one of the promises that God had made long ago to Abraham about the land actually came to total fulfillment under Solomon. In Genesis fifteen eighteen, God had said to uh, Abraham that the extent of the land that he would uh, inherit or be given would extend from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Then if you look in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 21, this is during the reign of Solomon. This description is given. So Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river, referring to the Euphrates, to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. So the very exact words are used to describe the extent of Saul's or Solomon's kingdom. Now, the thing that's 
interesting to me is to think about how such a smart guy like Solomon, perhaps the wisest man ever to live, could make such a disaster of his role as the leader of his people and of his own personal life. As the leader of his people, he uh, built a very, very fabulous city of Jerusalem. He built this elaborate palace for himself and, of course, the temple. Uh, he took 700 wives, 300 concubines, established all sorts of centers of idolatry for these wives of his. All of this uh, building and wealth that uh, Solomon was involved in meant that he had to import several key ingredients, gold, copper, cedar. None of those things were available in the land of Israel. So what did Solomon do? He laid heavy taxes on the people. Sounds a little bit like what's happening to us today, doesn't it? Uh, he taxed his people very heavily so that uh, many of them actually uh, went into poverty because of the very taxes. But not only that, when he ran out of tax money, he paid for some of these goods with land and people. He actually gave away some 20 of the cities of the nation of Israel to other to the king of Phoenicia, uh, to play for these goods that he was getting. And then he also made slaves of his own people. About every three months, about 30,000 of his own people were turned over to the Phoenician king as his slaves, as his laborers, to do work, forced labor for them. Uh, and this, in reading about this and remembering it again, made me uh, also remember a passage in First uh, Samuel 8. And, and I won't go back and read that, but verses 10 through 18 of First Samuel 8, what Samuel is doing is the people have asked for a king, and so he gives them fair warning. He tells them, the king will take your men and your women and make servants and slaves of them, and uh, he will take your wealth away from you. Uh, he told them they would pay dearly, and well, under Solomon, sure enough, they did. Solomon, of course, did have a long-lasting impact on the history of his nation, if you think about it. When his son Rehoboam became king, the kingdom split, and the ten tribes to the north never lived according to God's will. All of the kings over that land were wicked and idolatrous leaders. And even in the southern kingdom, if you count them up, only eight out of 20 of the kings of that land were actually good and righteous men. So Solomon's legacy lived on. Uh, and finally, the idolatry that was a part of his heritage passed on to his people uh, led to their own destruction. Just one final word. God is a covenant maker, but God is also a covenant keeper. He'll keep his promises. Uh, he executes the penalties that he has promised in his covenants. And he also extends to us the rewards 
So the warning is there for who, through all of these uh, leaders of Israel, through such men as Saul and Solomon and David in their, in their wicked ways from time to time, as might be said of David, uh, they paid the penalty, they paid the cost, the consequences of sin uh, were exacted uh, by God in their lives in various ways. Next week we'll look at really kind of an extension of this matter of God as covenant keeper or covenant maker. God is faithful. So I look forward to uh, being with you next week. I believe that I've just about finished on time. I don't know whether anyone has any final, there's, I guess that's the final bell. Uh, I would like for us to just bow for a brief prayer, if you would, with me. Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you for all of the things that you've done through the many, many years of your history with your people. Thank you, Father, for the covenants that you have made with us. Thank you for the fact that you have provided a way for us to serve you, to honor you, and to live our lives so that we might receive the rewards that you have promised in your covenant. Thank you for the guidance you provide. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.